Have I made terrible mistakes? This is the opening phrase of Curtis Sitton's Fells American Wife, a fictional biography of Laura Bush, First Lady of the United States. I'm Stephanie Schaefer, and I'd like to welcome you to the second episode of Lady Fiction, a podcast dedicated to reading women. Today's episode will discuss the phenomenon of first lady fiction, so books written about that highly public and controversial figure of the first lady of the United States. Do first ladies have power? Are they just arm candy? If we were puzzled about this after Hillary Clinton's failed bid for the presidency in 2008, it seems that with Michelle Obama's first ladyship, it has become certain that the president's spouse can become an influencer, a global celebrity, and a cultural icon. And that's what I'd like to discuss today by asking about books about first ladies and how to fictionalize her. My guest for this episode is Dr. Katharina Gerund, an American studies scholar at the University of Erlangen-Nürnberg. Katharina's research focuses on transnational feminisms and sentimental cultures, and she's currently completing her second book, or habilitation, on army wives in U.S. culture. Welcome, Katharina, to First Lady Fiction. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. I am so happy to have you. So let's start talking about this first phrase. Have I made terrible mistakes is the beginning of Curtis Sittensfeld's novel about Laura Bush. What kind of a starter is that? I think it's an interesting starter, right? It makes us wonder what mistakes could there be? What mistakes she may have actually done? And I think it sets the tone of kind of the self-critical stance that our narrator takes on her role as first lady and wife to the president. So I think it kind of makes us aware of the questions that will be lurking in the background for the first three chapters when it's much more about her growing up and meeting uh, Charlie Blackwell, who is the George W. Bush figure in this narrative. Um, and then this prologue um, already has the idea in our minds that we need to think about what she mistakes she may made, make on this way to the White House and how she reflects on those. And the phrase is actually repeated towards the end of the novel. So it comes full circle towards the end to come back to this first question of assessing her own role in politics and in the public sphere. Mm. And it's, I mean, I was surprised when I found this novel because I was like, okay, Laura Bush, did I just overlook her? Is she just not as spectacular? What, what kind of, what is Laura Bush to you or what has she been uh, in the past? And why, um, why do you think Sittenfeld would pick her as an American wife? So Curtis Sittenfeld herself is a Democrat and she has, time and again professed that she herself is a fan of Laura Bush. 
Hmm. And especially since she so abhorred the policies and politics of George W. Bush, um, she was much more kind of drawn and fascinated, drawn to and fascinated by Laura Bush as a first lady. So it's interesting that the wife comes in as the more positive figure here in contrast to the president and the man who actually holds political office in this constellation. So one thing that is, I think, interesting is that really Curtis Sittenfeld has been working through her own fascination with Laura Bush through this novel. Hmm. And the other thing is that I think it is also interesting as a choice for this current moment. I mean, the book was published in 2008, but also reading it now, it stages a transpartisan romance. Hmm. It shows what does that us, mean? <laughs> it shows us Laura Bush as a secret, not-so-secret Democrat who falls in love with a Republican, a staunch Republican. And then ends up being first lady and, of course, having to support his agenda in office. Um, and I think it's a question that at the current moment, when we talk about the you know, growing divide in U.S. society culture, um, the partisan politics that we observe in Washington today, I think it's really interesting to see how these you know, political differences play out in the microcosm of the marriage of the Blackwells that is portrayed in American Wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you say a transpartisan romance, I really like the term. Is it, does that, and this is going off on a limb here, but that, does that compare like to something like in the progressive era, the, um, the sectional romance between where the northerner had to come and marry a southern wife and, uh, domesticate her as the north was supposed to be domesticated, uh, a domesticating power of the south? Or does that, does that relate to this in any way? Or what, what's the romance deal here? I think the romance deal here is actually really quite interesting. So I think, um, the book really is also about America and American identity and American mm. politics in so many ways. And it tries to imagine how, you know, Democrats and Republicans could literally live together in the same household. The interesting thing, thing though, about this transpartisan romance is, I think, that it also shows us that it comes at a really high price for at least one party involved and that it is preconditioned on a lot of shared values and ideas still. So what I want to say with this is this is not a love conquers all narrative, even though at some point Alice chooses, and this is a quote from the book, love over ideology. This is not a love conquers all story because she never really fits into that role. The political debate is ongoing in this marriage, despite the love, despite the romance. And they kind of make it through, obviously. But it's not an easy task. And Alice is the one, um, so Alice Blackwell, the fictional Laura Bush, if you want, she's the one who has to compromise all the time. She keeps her political leanings a secret. She only um, talks about politics on few occasions. Um, she tries to, I think at some point she even says, I never try to offer my opinion to his political decision making process. Um, so she kind of compromises. She adapts to the Blackwell clan into which she marries. Um, she adapts to the politics that her husband pursues, um, and she pays a price for that, as we can see. She struggles with the complicity, with being part of that, how she's involved in it. Should she do more? Does she make mistakes mm -hmm. by, you know, standing at the sidelines? So she pays a price. And the other thing that I think makes this interesting is also the kind of preconditions for their arrangement, if you want. Throughout the novel, there is such a 
sense of shared whiteness and entitlement um, mm. and heteronormativity and all kinds of conservative values that the two protagonists, if you want, share, even though they you know, have different political leanings. So there is a common basis and one that, you know, we could also problematize in terms of what this implies um, for mm. the romance at the core of the novel. Mm. Do you think she's a typical Midwestern white Democrat? And that makes her a better fit for Charlie Blackwell, a.k.a. George W. Bush? I think she is in so many ways. I mean, she also reflects on how much her life has been shaped by, you know, growing up in Wisconsin and having these values instilled in her from her father, who is a bank manager and tells her she can do whatever she wants, but she has to be good at it. Right. So this kind of like almost, you know, Protestant work ethic in the back of this this narrative. Um, and I think the kind of Midwestern setting is really interesting because, of course, we know that the Bushes actually hail from Texas. And mm -hmm. Sittenfeld now chooses Wisconsin mm -hmm. um, as the setting for her novel. And it's at the same time, I think Texas somehow is in popular cultural depictions, oftentimes much more glamorous, right? You think about oil tycoons, you think about the West that also has kind of the part of the regional southern identity attached to it. Mm. Um, so I think Texas can be glamorized quite easily in popular culture and has been, of course, right? Wisconsin, not so much, I would say. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it really comes to stand in here for the kind of, you know, American heartland. This is flyover country. This is the Midwest. And I think it kind of grounds this narrative uh, really at the center of the U.S. somehow. Yeah. yeah. Flyover country, huh? So is, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be um, cheeky here and refer to one of the conversations we had before we started this podcast, namely that you said you were in Wisconsin when um, George W. Bush ran for president, and uh, that you you said you experienced Wisconsin quite differently from the Texas that was staged around the real George W. Bush. So what was Wisconsin or Madison like in the 2000s? And how do you see it depicted here in American Wife? Does that concur with your feeling there? Or is it different? It kind of does concur. I could recognize a lot of things, not just in terms of the, you know, the references that are made to, you know, Madison State Street and like the different character that Madison has in contrast to much of the much of the rest of the state, maybe. So Madison really is a liberal hub. It is a very European city. Um, and I could really sense this from the descriptions in the book. I also think that it's uh, interesting to see um, that when I was there, at least, and this was during the second campaign in 2004, it was really interesting to see that this was Madison definitely was a battleground, uh, not just a battleground state, but specifically also Madison. You had like campaign events every other week, but you also had, I remember one image um, from a, from a dorm window uh, where you could actually see like the Kerry sign and the Bush sign right next to each other. So this kind of like mm. transpartisan, bipartisan spirit that I think our protagonist exudes and that also is kind of at the center of the novel is something that I kind of experienced there as well. Okay, so let's get you. You already talked about whiteness, and um, Alice Blackwell as Laura Bush, of course, is a, is a Midwestern white woman of middle class background. She's pro choice. Um, she's also kind of trying to be independent. But then there are these moments in the novel where I cringed reading um, when 
she talks about in her own protagonist voice, she talks about black people, um, special needs people, disabilities, uh, and there's a sense of, of, of weirdness or aloofness that she has facing cultural others, I think. Um, how does that link to images of the first lady that we might have today or that we've had in the past? I think you're right. There are those cringe-worthy moments. Um, so obviously the novel asks us to sympathize with Alice Blackwell and with her role as first lady that she also kind of dreads, right? She's taking on the role, but she's not fully uh, convinced of its you know, confines and its requirements. And the text actually sets out to, and this is a quote um, actually by Alice Blackwell um, as the narrator of the story, she says that the first lady is kind of a canvas onto which Americans project their dreams, wishes, and fears. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, I think, exactly what the book negotiates the expectations that this, you know, office brings with it or this role brings with it and the way that she steps into that. And we are asked to sympathize throughout, right? We really get to know this protagonist. She is, this is a first person narrative. Um, we get her thoughts, her perspective uh, throughout the novel. Um, and we are asked to sympathize as readers quite obviously. At the same time, you have these cringeworthy moments, right? And she kind of navigates those in a way that my feeling reading this was always she really comes off as the better half in this relationship in the sense that she <laughs> talks about, you know, um, Charlie Blackwell's racism and his racist slurs and how she doesn't like him to use these around her daughter, for instance. Right. At the mm. same time that you can sense that she is so uncomfortable around non-white people, right, or people of color in general. So when she, for instance, visits one of the characters in the novel um, who works at the Blackwell home or whose mother works at the Blackwell home um, and she has to go to this neighborhood um, where the African-American characters live, she doesn't feel comfortable, right? She describes in very vivid terms how she was so happy to go back, get back into her suburban white lady Volvo and drive mm. off and hear the locks click, right, after she's made it back to the car. So it's quite obvious um, that on the one hand, she can easily kind of come off as a more sympathetic character as the kind of, as I said, better half maybe of this couple, but only in contrast to her husband, to Charlie Blackwell. So she needs this contrast to kind of become this figure we can empathize with at least a little bit to me. And I think that goes through through the novel, right? She is, she has those moments where maybe you feel as a reader, oh, you're really not doing this, or this is not really what you think. And still, I mean, she reflects on these issues. She also asks, mm. did I make mistakes? Right. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting balance that Sittenfeld strikes with this novel in kind of showcasing the, you know, white superiority that obviously um, Alice Blackwell ascribes to um, and also showcasing her struggles to kind of be better somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But then class is also a topic that runs through this. So she marries into this straight out, you know, clan, <laughs> um, and she goes to the club meetings and she's uncomfortable, uh, attending or attending the parties. She gets terribly drunk at the first family party where she's introduced as the new girlfriend. And, uh, uh, so she's really, she's always so uncomfortable, but the, the, uh, the, the lack of comfort or the, some ease, some gaining any ease in her own skin is, is actually 
to me the main one of the main motifs so in the beginning she's uncomfortable because she's a teenager and then her, terrible things happen to her and she becomes um she describes this phase as as her oyster phase where she recedes uh um and she she's she's shot away from um, her environments and then as a, as a young grown-up she's out of place because she can't secure her husband she's talking she's always talking about how she's so old and uh, uh, she you know is, is planning on getting her own house but then she meets Charlie Blackwell and then the discomfort continues all the way until 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue so she's never secure or really sure of herself she's always in doubt and always would rather be a solitary person uh, somewhere living in the woods this is a quote living in the woods um looking out at the world and i was wondering if there's such a thing as a a, a first lady misfit that uh curtis felt described so so why why does she take laura bush if we go beyond Sittenfeld's own discomfort with the Bush administration, why doesn't she take Hillary Clinton as she did in a, in a later novel? Or why doesn't she take Nancy Reagan, uh, the creature of, um, or, or the, the woman from the movies uh, and from the Hollywood world? Why Laura Bush? Well, obviously I can only speculate uh, about this uh, question, I think. Laura Bush lends herself quite easily to stylize her into this American outsider figure, right? Um, that you just described. When the novel was published, Laura Bush's own memoirs had not yet been written. Um, so they came out two years later, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it's also kind of like, you can see that Sittenfeld draws on biographies that had been published and other materials in very meticulous ways, but her own voice was, was not there yet in terms of a book publication, right? The memoir came out afterwards. Um, so it's also an interesting moment for Sittenfeld to drop this. And I think the choice of Laura Bush, I think, is on the one hand about making a an intervention into contemporary politics, right? Especially in the last chapter, I think she's really focusing on the Bush presidency and also the you know major yeah. political um, events at the time. Um, and then also, I think this Laura Bush maybe was not in the same way already, you know, saturated as an image in popular culture at the time um, for her to use her as this figure, if that makes sense, so that she could easily become this projection screen. And she's also working hard to stay in the frame. Um, so if you think about how would you construct a narrative voice uh, of such a figure that you have to have to fictionalize, uh, her, her narrative voice is very strong, but it's very also very internalized. So there's a, a harsh difference between what she tells herself or maybe her most intimate readership, namely us, and then what she tells the world. And there's always this, this trying to make it good and trying to um, cling to the love and trying to reach out while at the same time acknowledging the fact that she's on the one hand, she's complicit. On the other hand, she's also... Uh, struggling hard to kind of maintain the legacy of her husband. That's what she wants. She's not like striking out for herself, riding off into the sunset, getting a, you know, becoming a flaming divorcee at any time. She's, she's not looking for a scandal. She's looking for a recluse. So um, that's what I found, found intriguing. So, so how does, how does that fit with the fact that um, this is also a book about books 
Laura is a librarian, so Laura Bush was a librarian or is a librarian, trained librarian, and Alice uh, Blackwell is also a librarian. Um, what does Sidenfeld do with the fact that this is a novel that she gives us? Is it what kind of, I don't know, do you, do you see any links to contemporary literature? And I'm still puzzling about this because I don't know if, if, if it sides with, you know, new sincerities or with women's writing, is it a feminist novel? What's the moment for this? Yeah, this is a really, really broad question. And I will try to come to the role of this book, maybe by starting out with a short quote on exactly the legacy issue, because I found it one of the really telling moments in the novel, uh, when our narrator, Alice Blackwell, talks about the fact that, of course, you know, um, she and Charlie are kind of a perfect fit, but then also they have, you know, differences, significant differences, and they have to make sense of um, how they can live together. Um, and she says, as she writes at that point, or tells us as the narrator, there are many things about Charlie that I knew other people might imagine I'd find irritating. His crudeness, his healthy ego, his general squirminess. And I didn't. But his fixation with his legacy, I even grew to hate the word. I found intolerable. It seems so indulgent, so silly, so male. I have never ever heard a woman muse on her legacy, and I certainly have never heard a woman panic about it. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting about Alice Blackwell as the protagonist of this novel is that she is so fed up with this, you know, legacy that, and this is just one of the many references to this term in the book, at the same time that, as you correctly say, the book contributes to safeguarding this legacy, right? Mm. Um, from her perspective, she is writing about her life, her husband's uh, time in the White House, his you know, political ambitions, and so on. So it's interesting that at the same time that she has this gesture of modesty, of um, this is a male thing, men care about legacy, of course the book tells us otherwise, because she tells us her side of the t story. Um, she tells us her perspective, she tells us her struggles. So it's an interesting dynamic, I think, to, in the way that the book itself is kind of complicit in creating the kind of Charlie Blackwell legacy, if you want, um, at the same time that it tries to create a legacy of her own for Alice Blackwell, who is, you know, so silent throughout many of the scenes and, and instances in the novel as a, as a character. And this is maybe also where the book comes in, because throughout the novel, and this is really, several characters do this. It's not just the protagonist. Books are really, really important, right? Alice Blackwell is not just a trained librarian. She is reading all the time, reading to people, reading with people, um, you know, giving books as gifts. Um, and she really, really ascribes to the idea that reading makes you a better person, right? And is that, do I could remember correctly? Yeah. So when he, when he sees her for the first time, She's reading to kids, and that's when he's thunderstruck, and yes. Charlie falls in love with her. That's the so she is the the woman civilizer uh, because she's a reader and a teacher, and uh, also kind of this recluse who who's not all out on everyone. Absolutely, and I mean she makes this explicit as she talks about that being a reader was what had made me most myself, right? So reading is really mm -hmm. important um, for herself but also for her kind of public performance, as you say, right? Even if it's just a performance for this observer who falls in love with her while she's reading uh, to a child. But it's, reading is really important. It's, at one point, she even says that fiction is her faith, uh, when she wonders how mm. Charlie Blackwell um, you know, comes out of his alcoholism and his problems by becoming a born-again Christian and finding faith. 
um, she compares this. She says, I can't really relate to this, you know, organized religion stuff, but perhaps fiction has, and this is the quote for me, served a similar purpose. What is a narrative arc if not the imposition of order on disparate events? And perhaps it is my avid reading that has made has been my faith all along. So, I mean, this is really making books an important venue to negotiate legacies, right? Mm -hmm. And this brings me to another question that I have about this book. How American is it? Um, so if, if Curtis Sittenfeld or Alice Blackwell tell us that books are the solution uh, to, uh, or books are a better religion, then what kind of cultural work does does American Wife, uh, the novel, what, what kind of cultural work does it do? Yeah, that's a, that's a, not a broad one. I'm sorry. Another broad question, <laughs> but one that I, I, I really was also struggling with when reading it because mm. I was wondering, this was a bestseller, right? This is really still, uh, marketed in, in broad terms, translated and so on. Um, so I think it's, it's an interesting question always to ask, why is this book so popular and why does this resonate with readers and what does it, you know, do to those readers? if we may speculate a bit, um, that, you know, makes it worth their while. I think uh, I've read in one review by Joyce Carol Oates where she called it a parable of America in the years of the second Bushman presidency. Hmm. Hmm. So I think the Americanness is really there um, in a sense that it, you know, plays out. It tries to make sense of these Bush years. Um, it tries to make sense of the role of the first lady and why, you know, people very often expect her to do you know great things even though she has not been elected even though she does not hold you know political office and so on um and it i think it tries to make sense of these developments of the bush years um in ways that obviously resonate with viewers so i think that's part of the cultural work the other one is the question of and you already used the term earlier like um is this feminist right and what sense is it mm -hmm. feminist Mm -hmm. So this is an interesting. So Curtis Sittenfeld writes woman-centered fiction, right, throughout. And here she takes on um, the first lady and imagines what this role can do for the representation of women also to some degree. And it's an interesting dynamic because on the one hand, this is a really traditional view of the role of women, right? Uh, or the roles of women in society, in family, in politics. Um, so once... Um, Alice Blackwell actually gets married. She, of course, no longer works as a librarian. She, of course, becomes a full-time mother and wife. Um, she embraces that role. She never questions it. And she is reminded by other characters that this is her proper role, right? If you think about her mother-in-law who says, this is your duty yeah. to be a good housewife. When um, Charlie says to her, now that I run for political office, being the wife of a politician is a full-time job, right? So in many ways, she is really not an emancipatory figure. Um, she really fulfills an almost, you know, 50-ish version of the housewife and mother, and she tries at least to kind of adhere to that ideal in so many ways. At the same time, we see her breaking with those, you know, with the ideas of an idealized white womanhood as she, you know, she has had an abortion. She has been single until she, you know, throughout her 20s as she has lived alone until she, she was 31 exactly she <laughs> even considered buying a house right yes buying her own home not waiting for the husband so i mean she has these moments where she seems really you know um stepping outside of this prescribed and confined role for white women to be housewife and mother but then she also she doesn't get out of that she ends up being the wife right the american wife even 
the representative American wife of the title. Um, and I think that's, that's an interesting dynamic um, where I would hesitate to say that this is a feminist book to some degree because I feel she show, the, the protagonist shows us that she can't get out of this role um, as first lady and she struggles with that and she lets us kind of in into her struggles. So it has these, these fantasies of emancipation, of progress, of also the different roles she could inhabit, but then she doesn't. Alice Blackwell doesn't inhabit these roles. And Sittenfeld, I mean, Rodham would be the uh, kind of counterpart to this, right? Because she imagines what Hillary's life would have been like had she not married Bill, had she not become exactly. an American wife. So I think, you know, this is kind of the American wife doesn't get us there. Mm-hmm. But maybe Rodham does. So, so you talked about, so Rodham is a 2020 novel that, um, uh, Sittenfeld published, uh, last year. Uh, and it's basically, as you say, the, the, the story of what Hillary could have been if she had said no to, uh, Bill Clinton and, uh, remained Rodham herself. So it seems that Sittenfeld is, is kind of striking a nerve or kind of negotiating that, which we could also kind of called celebrity politics, namely the uh, the interest in the person who becomes uh, an office holder or even just a spouse of an office holder. And when you talked about how, on the one hand, um, Alice doesn't really get into her role, but she also, she, she can't really get out of it either. I was thinking um, about how maybe Alice as a, or not a fictional figure, but Laura Bush as a figure who becomes fictionalized by Sittenfeld paves the way for later first ladies. And uh, what we're seeing in our day and age uh, of negotiations about the role. So we've seen, we've seen the first ladyship of uh, Michelle Obama eclipse any previous occupants, I would think. Uh, she's become a global mega celebrity in the meantime. And she's also broadcast from, from any kind of medium. She's on Spotify. She's on, uh, she's writing books. Mm -hmm. uh, she's doing a documentary. So you cannot, it's really become difficult to escape the media persona of Michelle Obama. So she's kind of eclipsed her husband's fame. Or maybe she fits perfectly into that people.com celebrity interest segment that the public has in personas who are out there and whose images are broadly mediatized. So going back to the question of what kind of persona is Alice Blackwell, uh, do you think she's, when she said, when you say it's not so super feminist, uh, is she a, a fantasy of conservative womanhood or an undercover Democrat or the compromise that we have to make if we want any kind of leadership or Americans want any kind of leadership. I think she is, I mean, she is not a conservative woman in the narrow sense, I would say, because I mean, her views, as you already said, they are really liberal, right? Um, she's pro-choice. She is at least, you know, open to desegregation also early on. She is invested in gay rights, at least privately, um, in the sense that she, you know, recognizes that, you know, other sexualities exist and they are, you know, legit um, on a very basic level, right? So she has these liberal leanings. So I would say she's not, I mean, and obviously with, with the abortion topic, um, it's, it's really hard to say that she is 
an embodiment of conservative womanhood. I think she's a liberal fantasy of what a conservative woman could mm. look like who actually is a Democrat. So again, going to mm -hmm. this like topic of, you know, transpartisan, bipartisan dialogue that the, that the book is so in invested in, at least that's my reading of it, to see, you know, what would this look like uh, if we had someone on the inside um, who actually shares much of the more values attached to, you know, a liberal stance, democratic, the Democratic Party and so on. So I think that's really part of the point um, that mm. she doesn't really fit in on either side, so to speak. Mm. It's also yeah. no coincidence that her father is kind of like, his, what do you recall what his big hobby is? He's invested in bridges, right? He, he visits oh, bridges. True. He's fascinated by bridges, <laughs> literally bridging, right? So this is in your face, how the book tries to negotiate, you know, these partisan politics and political differences through this character of Alice Blackwell, who then, of course, I think, and I think that's also in the prologue that we already quoted from in the very beginning, uh, where she says that she maybe leads a life in opposition to itself. And I think that's really to the point. You can't just... You know, you can't just pigeonhole her as, you know, the conservative wife or the secret Democrat. She's she's a little bit of, of both of these um, figures, I would say. Mm -hmm. So this kind of brings me back to a question that I had all along um, when I was reading this. Um, one of the big questions about first ladies is what kind of power do they have? They're not elected. They're, they're, there's no constitutional function uh, written about them. Uh, it's just a convention that has grown into a weird cultural tradition that first ladies live in the White House, they live upstairs, and uh, they're supposed to be representative. But historians have talked about this so-called pillow power that they have, that they can whisper into the president's ear and influence him, that they, be, that they can be the civilizers. And in the novel, there's this moment when Alice says that she kind of follows her heart and she talks to a uh, protester who's camped outside the White House who's asking for uh, the troops, uh, foreign troops to be brought home. She talks to him and this is spun afterwards as a, a kind of treason. So the tabloids go or the media, news media post Uh, the slogan, it's to Alice, uh, quoting the Caesar treason by Brutus. And I was wondering, is that the power she plays? Is that, can she, when she goes all out and talks from her heart and goes against the convictions that her husband, the president, is trying to put out there, is that disloyalty or is it wielding independent power? How did you read that scene? I didn't. I personally didn't read it as disloyalty. Of course, that's the way that the novel stages it, right? Um, and mm -hmm. I find it interesting that whenever Alice Blackwell actually voices her opinions loudly or, you know, in a very public way, this has this has you know consequences, right? Her husband is uh, really mad at her. Um, she has to kind of you know justify herself for why she did this. Um, and so on. So this is this is never something that just happens throughout this novel. It is, um, and you can also assume that the protagonist kind of knows what she's doing. It's also her voice that tells us the story, right? So at least she frames it in a way that she follows her heart and she wants us to believe as readers or go along with the assessment that she is doing what she thinks is right. There is some degree of power to it, 
But I think um, the way I read Alice Blackwell, she as a narrator is much more invested in telling us that she doesn't have this kind of power that people believe she has. So one narrative angle is that she someone tries to blackmail her to prevent uh, the Supreme Court nominee that uh, Charlie Blackwell is suggesting from going through, right? Um, and she says she can't do this, and how would she do this? And she doesn't even want to interfere with the politics. And she also says at some point that she doesn't really know what her opinion is on some really important issues, so she can't voice it. And then she, I think that's one statement uh, on the final page of the novel where she says, actually speaking to the implied readers of the novel, and she says, says all I did was marry him. You are the ones mm -hmm. who gave him power. So I think she's clearly um, invested in the idea that she has limited powers. And while she says towards the end that she could do more than, you know, had she just married someone from around Wisconsin and stayed and lived a nice suburban life, she says, I would have done less. But the question now is, could I have done more now that I'm first lady? And she's, she's not clear on how much power she has. And she's trying to figure out how much power she can actually use and how to use it. So I think... The fascinating part about the novel is that it lets us follow a first lady in trying to figure out how much power she actually has and whether and how she wants to use it if it is there. And what, so you said Laura Bush wrote her own autobiography or her memoir after uh, this novel was published. Did you, what does she have to say about this, the real person? Does she talk about power? She does, but also not in that outspoken kind of way. I think what I found fascinating reading Laura Bush's memoir, Spoken from the Heart, after reading American Wife by Curtis Sittenfeld, was that I was really astonished by the way that tone and style kind of match each other, and the way that some of the recognizable scenes, um, like the car accident, or the baseball team, or the books, right, or the Edgar Franklin episode clearly recalling mm. Cindy Sheehan camping in front of, you know, the, mm. the Bush's Texas ranch. So I think Curtis Sinfeld did a really good job in, in kind of transferring the public persona of Laura Bush into this fictional character and the framework in which she is placed at the very least. So, of course, uh, we're also talking about this a few weeks only after the inauguration of Joe Biden and um, his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, has had to face controversies uh, even before she became um, the first lady. Um, she also is an educator and one of her first appearances was to um, educators across the country holding up or applauding them for their for their contribution amid a global pandemic. So. One of the things that I was wondering about is how does um, Sittenfeld's American Wife, maybe the legacies of, of Laura Bush, feed into this image of the woman caretaker and how how do you see Joe Biden walk into the future of the first lady office? I think Joe Biden is a really interesting uh, persona um, in the way that she has embraced education, which is, of course, a female-coded issue that um, first ladies have been, you know, negotiating or being invested in for um, quite a while. So this is not new. What's new, however, is the way that she has asserted herself as 
a, an educator who will not, you know, step away from her job now that she is now that she is first lady. So that's a quite an interesting um, contrast to our fictionalized Laura Bush slash Alice Blackwell in American Wife, who never questions that she has to stop working once she gets married, even um, let alone become first lady, of course. And uh, Jill Biden has uh, made it quite clear that she continue she plans to continue to teach right herself. Um, and not just be a symbol, but also be a working working woman. And she has installed herself as Dr. Jill Biden in the public uh, mm -hmm. sphere, right? She's not just Jill Biden, the wife of, she's Dr. Jill Biden. And that's how she's announced at you know public events in official functions and so on. And I, also just adding the fact that she has, you know, she has earned her doctorate and um, she has her own career. I think that's a significant shift. And you know more about this than I do, so feel free to add to that. But I think it's a significant shift to, you know, previous first ladies um, in terms of the public persona that she's starting to create for her first ladyship at this moment. And I really wonder what Curtis Sittenfeld would make out of Dr. Joe Biden, right? So I've, <laughs> I've read it at one point that she said in an interview that she was asked several times to write about Melania Trump. Mm -hmm. um, and she refused time and again. She talks about double digits of, you know, request that she got and mm -hmm. she explained her reasons and she said first i don't want to think more about trump any more than i already am and the other reason is that i don't like being satirical or savaging people i really like writing about characters in a balanced complicated way and i don't think i could do that with melania trump i don't admire her mm -hmm. so that's uh, mm -hmm. curtis sittenfeld on melania and i wonder um what she would do with dr joe biden who is i think a person that she could easily admire probably. Mm. Um, and mm. that would also give a new twist to the first lady role. So yeah. we can maybe look forward to a fictionalization if that you know, <laughs> happens in the future and see what, um, you know, a writer makes out of this new public persona. Yeah, exactly. So the, the closing question here would be first lady fiction. Is it a genre? Is it a trend? Is it a thing? What do you think? So if it is a genre, Curtis Sittenfeld has nailed it. Um, yeah. So I think American Wife is the closest I could imagine um, for a book to be first lady fiction in the way that she really in-depth explores, you know, the, the public function, the identity, the thoughts and ideas of a first lady, and even really going back to her childhood, examining how she became the woman who would become first lady. Um, so I think mm -hmm. in that sense, I would say if there is such a thing as a genre of first lady fiction, this is it. I'm not sure that it amounts to a genre yet. Sittenfeld might may be working on that in the future to kind of install it as a full-fledged genre. But I think it really fits in with the way that popular culture has been fascinated by first ladies, not, you know, which is not new, which popular culture has been, if we think about the many reiterations of, you know, films, books, texts about first ladies, their power. Um, their role, their symbolic function. So I do think it taps into a larger um, conundrum of fascination in and interest in the first lady as this iconic figure. So as we go forward, um, maybe there will also be multimedia representation of, of first lady fiction. There may be multimedia um, representations of, of first lady fiction. So this, I think this has the potential to go into all kinds of directions, right? If we want to speculate a little bit. Um, the book we've discussed today, I think, really makes this about books and about the, you know, cultural power of the written word 
and especially the you know fiction and the book as a medium. Um, but I don't think it has to stop there. It can definitely you know be observed in other cultural venues, and I'm sure that it will branch out into all kinds of directions. And it's I mean one of the one of the things that we you talked about in the beginning, which I also find so striking, is that the starting point for this is always the wife. So um, as a character. Um, the first lady is is always already cast in a paternalistic constellation. She is the wife of the guy who gets elected. So so for me for this to go to become even more interesting than it is already, um, it would have to also start examining even more the logic of wifedom uh, in the U.S. and maybe a history of of first ladies as wives. So I think. Um, yeah, and the, excited and the, to see what happens. Yeah. yeah, and the gender politics behind that, right? I mean, now that we have our first female vice president and a second gentleman, um, I think it's also really interesting uh, what we will see in terms of, you know, how these gendered roles um, that are so, as you said, neatly gendered and like this is the role of the wife and this is, of course, the role of the president or vice president, um, how they will change uh, with kind of like the changing face of American politics becoming, you know, also more feminine, more female, and kind of, you know, digressing from from the scripts that have been so enshrined in the cultural imaginary. So in the end, the question is, did I make mistakes? And I guess we can't answer that question, really. But it's important to keep asking it. And this is, I think, a good conclusion for an episode on first lady fiction and lady fiction as well. Have I made terrible mistakes? Well, that will depend. So as we go along, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Katarina for being my guest today. It's been my pleasure. And I look forward to more discussions on this. views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening. Okay, done. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to do this. I'm totally passing out here. Andy, can you do something with this or is this all bad? Um, it's all bad. <laughs>